The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and this is episode number 239. I'm the host for this podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. If you have a story or you know someone that has a story that we could share on the podcast, please have them reach out. You can go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, and fill out a form on there and tell us all about yourself. Also, a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a good review because that helps other people find our podcast. And as you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is to give people hope and to let them know that there are help options available if they themselves or one of their loved ones is addicted to drugs and or alcohol. Before I tell you about today's interview, I wanted to bring it to your attention that Hulu is airing an eight-part miniseries called Dope Sick, and it is all about Purdue Pharma and their lies about OxyContin not being addictive and how that caused, didn't cause the epidemic that we have today, the addiction epidemic, because let's face it, there was heroin, there was Valium, there were lots of other drugs that came before OxyContin, but they definitely started the opioid addiction. And this uh, series, Dope Sick, is all about that. I've only watched the first episode, but it's good. So today we are going to talk to a gentleman named Paul Casey. After spending almost 20 years struggling with addiction, Paul finally made the conscious decision to change, and we'll find out what that decision was. With one year left on his decade-long prison stay, he began to work on himself from the inside out. Through internal work and a shift in his mindset, he's been able to stay clean while building a successful coaching business. Today, he's able to help others become their best self through fitness, nutrition, and mindset coaching. Not only that, but Paul has been able to share his story with others in need of guidance and help them see that they too can overcome horrendous situations and obstacles. And that's why he's on here today is to share his story. So let's talk to Paul Casey. Paul Casey, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast and tell your story. I have said this many times, but I'm gonna say it again. I know that what we wanna hear from you is not necessarily the part of your life that you are most proud of. And so I appreciate that you are willing to come on here and tell it because I think it makes a difference with people who listen. Oh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on this podcast with you and to share my story and hopefully help save someone's life. That's the whole idea. You got it. So, Paul, tell me, start off with the beginning. I mean, where did you grow up? How did you get into drugs? What was your family life like? Take me back. Well, uh, I grew up, I was born in the Bay Area. I was born in a, I was actually born in San Mateo. Um, we moved to Fremont. Um, my parents are both recovering addicts and alcoholics. Um, my dad was what they would call the dry drunk. So he didn't work on his issues. He just stopped using, right? Um, whereas my mom, she tried to work on him, but she struggled. And, you know, because of that, um, there was a lot of turmoil in the house. My dad was physically and emotionally and mentally and verbally abusive. 
um, to me and to my younger brother. Um, and uh, I don't know if he wasn't, I know he was verbally abusive with my mom. I don't know about physically because their arguments happened behind closed doors. But I remember being a young age and my mom struggling with her addiction, especially with alcohol. She would come home and she'd be drunk. He wasn't happy with it. They would go behind the closed doors and fight. And me and my brother would sit there scared, not knowing what's going on. Both of them screaming, yelling, threats were made, all this stuff. Um, and eventually it came to a point where they decided that this wasn't working and my mom left. Um, and you know, when she left, I blamed myself, um, for a long time. Right. I wasn't, I felt I wasn't lovable. I wasn't worthy of love. Why didn't my mom love me? All this stuff. Um, and then I felt the same way. Why didn't my dad love me enough to not slap me around, not scream at me, not threaten me, not, you know, all these things that I had going through in my mind as a kid. And, um, and so they, they ended up, you know, splitting up. You look like you had a question. Did you have a question? No, I was just going to make a comment. And oh. that is that, you know, this is obviously about your addiction story and what you went through. But I want to make the point to the listeners that if you are a parent and you have a drug or alcohol problem, this is a prime example of what it does to your children. And, you know, we've heard it, ha we've heard it talked about before, but I don't think we necessarily, well, some cases we do talk to the child, if you will, and what it was like to have parents who were struggling with addiction. And it's not pretty, you know? So if you're listening and you are a parent and you are struggling, if you don't want to get clean and sober for yourself, you might want to consider getting clean and sober for your children. I'm just saying. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that. That, that was, that was awesome. Um, yeah. So, so they ended up splitting up. Um, and my dad ended up getting remarried. And during this time, you know, they had split custody and I didn't realize it then but I realize it now, now that I've done some work and some deep diving into my history, into my childhood traumas, um, my mom was trying her best, right? Now that I've dealt with addiction myself, I understand that she was struggling. She was doing the best she, she could. Um, and because they, because they had split custody, I remember she would have weekends with us. And most weekends were spent staying at one of her friend's houses. And we always thought this was just because we're just staying at a friend's house for the weekend. But really, it's because my mom had nowhere to go. My mom was homeless, right? Um, because of her, her using. And um, she, you know, sometimes she would get clean long enough to have us for the weekend and her friends would let her come over and stay the weekend. Um, there are actually times where we would quote unquote go camping. And really she was homeless and she had nowhere else to take us. And we, I remember we would drive her, her red Jeep Cherokee. Um, I remember vividly, we'd go to Santa Cruz along the beach. Um, and we enjoy a day at the beach and then we camp in her, her, her car for the weekend, you know? And I believe, I thought this was like a normal thing, right? This was like, Oh, it's, my mom is so fun. And then I had to go home to my dad and my dad was not cool at all. Right. And, and it was like this weird dynamic that it created. Right. Um, and during this time, my dad had gotten remarried and he, he decided he was going to try religion to help him with his issues. And in that end, he ended up forcing this religion upon my brother and myself, right? And it, and it developed a very, a very unhealthy relationship with a higher power for myself because the attitudes and behaviors that he was uh, um, 
distributing and showing did not match up to the religion he was trying to force upon us. Right. And, and the woman he had married, um, she was not a good fit for us. We did not get along with her. Um, and it was just, it was just a very unhealthy household. Right. Um, we eventually moved to Arizona. Right. Um, he took us all the way to Arizona to, you know, start a new life, so to say. And it was in Arizona where things started to unravel for me. Um, I was now being taken away from my mom. And it was now like we would go spend like summer times with her or things like that. Like it was no longer like weekends. It was like holidays with her. And we get put on a plane and shipped out to California to see our mom during Thanksgiving or Christmas or summer break or whatever it is. And it was just a really unhealthy dynamic. Um, and, it, and it came to a point like where like um, I felt I had to be a protector for my brother. Right. We're on these planes and these airplanes, just me and him alone flying out to uh, California in our, you know, we were like 10, 11, 12 years old. And he's younger, right? He's younger. Yeah. He's about a year and a half younger than me. And so um, eventually what ended up happening was I ended up finding out that I didn't fit in with anyone at school. Right. Because I felt different than others. I didn't, I didn't think others were going through the same household issues I was going through. Um, I was like, kind of like forced to be friends with the kids in the church. And they all seemed to have these really happy households. And I was pretending that we did as well, but we didn't. Right. And I felt like an outsider. I felt like a fraud, like a fake. Um, and I, you know, I ended up fitting in, <laughs> interesting enough, I ended up fitting in with a group, but this group, they use drugs. Right. They drank and they smoked weed at that time. And I was totally against drugs. Right. Like my mom was a drug addict. I didn't never want to. I was never going to use drugs. I was so convinced I was never going to use drugs. Um, but I had anger issues by now. Right. And I was getting in fights at school and it was just like a lot of things were happening. And I was I was constantly getting into conflict with my stepmom, with my dad. And I had got to a point where like. I, I was just too much to handle in my dad's eyes, right? And so he decided, you know what? We're going to send you to your mom. And so me and my brother were sent to my mom. By now, my mom had gotten clean. My mom had made some changes in her life, and uh, she had gotten clean. She was working as a nurse. She was doing really well. But she was just getting her footing, right? So she wasn't very financial, financially capable to take on two kids at that time, you know? And, and how old were you then? At that time, I was 15 years old. Okay. okay. So I had started smoking a little bit of weed, drinking a little bit of alcohol, nothing crazy yet. Um, 15 years old, I got sent to California, new school, new environment. It was the middle of summer, right before um, sophomore year. And I decided at that point, I was going to fit in with the first person that would allow me to fit in. Okay. <laughs> Mind you, my mom didn't have much money, so we did not live in a nice neighborhood. Okay. We lived in an apartment complex. She rented a room in this apartment with another guy. Okay. So it was me, my brother, and my mom in one bedroom. Wow. And the first thing I did when I got there, I started walking through the neighborhood. I found some people hanging out and I said, Hey guys, I'm new to the neighborhood. What's up? And the first thing they said was, do you smoke weed? Yes, I smoke weed. And before you know it, I was smoking weed. I was drinking with this group of people. Um, and it progressed from there. Right. Um, my mom started doing better at work. So she went from living in this apartment with this guy that, you know, was actually in his addiction as well, um, to moving us to a, a two bedroom apartment where me and my brother had our own room that we shared. 
Um, once again, it was not in a good neighborhood. And once again, I, I was attracted to the group of people that were smoking weed and drinking, but these people were doing a lot more than just that. Hmm. And, um, so at that point I started congregating with this group of people that lived in my neighborhood. Um, and I started doing the same things they were doing, which included weed, alcohol, meth and crime. Okay. Um, now this was not a, so I'm white. Okay. And this was not a white neighborhood. Okay. This was a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood. And I had to make a decision to either be a prey or a predator. Right. I remember being targeted because I was white. I was going to say, I think that's a no brainer. If I had that choice, I definitely want to be the predator. I mean, it's sad that you have to make a choice like that, but who wants to be the prey? Exactly. You know, and, and I remember at first, when I first moved to this neighborhood, I was the prey. I was get the white guy, get that yep. white boy, get that white boy, you know? And I, and I, I knew how to fight. Like I, my dad taught me how to fight and I would fight and I would defend myself. But you know, when it's more than one person, like there's not much you can do. Um, so I started congregating with a group of people and I started involving myself in the same behaviors they were doing. Most of these guys were older. Um, so 15 years old, I was smoking weed, smoking meth, drinking alcohol, and I started going to jail. Right. So my first uh, encounter with the police at 15 years old, I actually, I got in a fist fight with my own brother. Right. Which is unfortunate because I went from being his protector to being the opposite. Right. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't agree with what I was doing. He saw the path I was going on and he was not okay with it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so we ended up getting in a fist fight. My mom, not knowing what to do, called the police. So they came and they took me. They took me to jail. Did your mom know you were doing drugs? I think she did, yes. Okay. Later on, she did for sure. Uh, um, but at that time, I, I, I would think that she maybe assumed I was doing drugs, but hadn't had proof just yet, Okay. Um, or she might've been in denial of it. Um, so I went to juvenile hall and I'm 15 years old. Um, and same thing. I went in and I started congregating with the same type of people that I was congregating with in the streets. Um, at 15 years old, I was given house arrest. They gave me an ankle monitor. Um, I didn't want to be stuck at home because I didn't fulfill what I needed to do to feed my addiction or my, my need for acceptance. Um, and I was back to doing the same things. I cut my monitor off and I ran the streets. Um, and I started going back and forth to juvenile hall. I went to juvenile hall two more times. And finally they took me away from my mom and they put me in a group home. Um, so they put me in this group home. I was 15 years old. And I got put in this group home and same thing, you know, fit, get in where you fit in. Um, the thing about group homes is you have a bunch of angry kids that don't know how to deal with their emotions that have now been taken away from their parents and it's a doggy dog world right there's times when i won the fight it's times when they won the fight you know still angry um there's the the group home system that i was in they had three homes in their program or whatever you want to call it i got kicked out of all three homes ended up just going back to juvenile hall and spending like six months in juvenile hall right so now i'm 16 years old um and it just became a revolving door for me you know Yep. I got out of juvenile hall. I got kicked out of school. I got sent to a continuation of school. Went back to juvenile hall. Got kicked out of that school. Went to another continuation of school. Got in a fight there. Got kicked out of that school and just gave up. Right. I dropped out of school. I said, I'm not going to school. Um, I was like 16. I was going, no, I was 17 at this time. Um, and basically, my mom had actually, she was tired. She was done. She was clean at this time. Right. She was not willing to put up with my behavior. And she did what they call tough love. 
She said, either you, you go to a program, you stop using drugs, or you have to leave my home. And I made the decision to leave her home. 17 years old, I made a decision to be homeless. Right? Wow. 17, you said? 17, yes. Oh. Uh, and so I bounced around on people's couches. But of course, as a kid, I was 17 years old. Most seven, other 17-year-olds, their moms don't want your friends spending the night every night eating all the food. I didn't have a job. I wasn't making – like I was make, I was doing illegal activities to support my drug habit. Like I didn't have money for rent. I didn't have – and um, I bounced around on couches. I slept in carports. Um, I slept at the college nearby my house. Um, I would just get so drunk that I would just pass out on the bleachers and just sleep there for the night. You know, like um, – I would actually go to my mom's apartment and break into the storage units in the carports and sleep in the car, the carports. Um, I found out later on in talking to my mom that uh, she would actually leave her car door unlocked because sometimes I would go sleep in her car, right? Um, especially in the winter when it was just so cold. And I just like, you know, the drugs couldn't keep me warm no more. The alcohol couldn't keep me warm no more. And I just, I needed somewhere to go. Um, I went in, in and out of, you know, juvenile hall several more times. I actually um, went to a psych ward a couple times. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I started self-harming myself, cutting myself. Um, and, I, I, and I remember the last time I was 17 years old. Um, I, got in, I got into a fight with my brother again. Um, he was like, change your ways, change your ways. And I punched him. And he didn't want to fight me. He loved me. He didn't want to see me where I was at. And he basically was like, he said something. He was like, I don't want to fight you. We're blood. And when I thought of blood, I decided to hurt myself right there in the spot. I grabbed a broken piece of glass from the ground and I started cutting myself on my arm. Um, blood everywhere. It was just horrible. And um, I, he was like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm just like walking down the street, just blood dripping down my arm with these you know, glass, glass wounds on my arm. And uh, I remember the police, they came, analysts came, the police had guns drawn on me. Get on the ground. I'm just crazy. I was just, I was homeless. I was on drugs. I was just like, I was a mess. Um, went to the psych ward and at eight, I was stayed there till I was 18. I was there for like three weeks. It was right before my 18th birthday. Um, there for like three weeks on my 18th birthday, I was legally allowed to sign myself out and I signed myself out and I went back to the same thing and it was just a constant thing, you know? Um, but I went back to the same thing. I went back to the streets for a little while longer. And then I had this situation. I had this, like my first aha moment, right? And, and mind you, my mom been clean for a while now, Right. My mom had taken me to meetings before I knew of NA, I knew of AA, I knew my mom actually worked for a, a drug program called support systems. Like she worked there. She was a nurse helping drug addicts come off of drugs in a healthy manner and helping them move forward with their lives. And she kept telling me, come to this program, come to this program. Um, I was 18. Um, I was hanging out with some people that I thought were my friends. They were not my friends. They set me up. They beat me down with, um, with beer bottles, um, threw me down a, a flight of stairs. And I showed up to my mom's house, a bloody mess, just beat down, dripping blood with nothing. They took everything I owned, basically. I had like a backpack, I was running around the streets with a backpack full of whatever. Um, they took that, you know, I didn't have nothing. Um, and um, I showed up and, and she was like, I will only let you in if you're willing to go to a program and get help. I said, all right, deal. She let me in, cleaned up the, the mess. I slept it off. Next morning, I went to the program. I kept my word. So I went to this program, 90-day program um, out in Hayward in the Bay Area. I went to the program, and the thing is, I was convinced that meth was my problem, not weed and alcohol, right? So just a lot of, a lot of addicts struggle with this. 
Um, I went to the program. I, it was actually a 30 day program. I'm sorry. This first program that I went to was 30 days. I went to the program 30 days. I'm fresh 18. Um, and I decide I'm going to finish the program. And I'm going to leave California and start a new life for myself. Right. Not so, a bad idea. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a bad idea if you know how to do it the right way. Right. Um, and, and, and I didn't know how to do it the right way. Right. I, I still have this messed up mentality that as long as I don't do meth, I'll be okay. <laughs> and, um, and so like, I have a buddy, he had moved to Washington and he had started a new life and he was, you know, had a girlfriend life was beautiful for him out there in Washington. I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to Washington. So I got in contact with him while I was at the program. He said, yeah, I've got a spare room at my house. I can help you get a job. Um, everything will be fine. Awesome. This is a childhood friend of mine. So he comes and picks me up. I graduated the program, comes and picks me up. We start driving to Washington. The first thing we do, we're smoking weed the whole way up there. I just, I'm 30 days clean. It just took a tiny bit of weed and I was already stoned. And I was like, all right, but weed's not my problem. I get there, we're drinking, we're smoking weed. I get a job. I just like probably the first time I've had a legitimate job. I mean, I think I worked in a couple, like a car wash as a kid, but nothing, nothing is serious, you know? I got a job, actually a pretty cool job of like activating Sears credit cards. So I'd call people and help them activate their credit cards. And, you know, I was in an office with a cubicle and I had to wear like a button up. So I felt like I was an adult, you know, I was like doing the responsible thing. But then I'd leave work and I'd drink and I'd smoke all night long. Um, and it moved into other things, ecstasy, um, I, I, cocaine. Like I wasn't a big cocaine fan. It wasn't my drug of choice, but it was what I could get my hands on. Right. They actually did, couldn't find any meth there. So that I just had to do every other drug they had out there. Right. You know, and then I, and I started like, you, you know how it is. Like, you know, I, you know, as an addict, I just want to change the way I feel. Right. I thought I was being responsible by having a job, starting my new life, but I still hadn't dealt with my childhood traumas. I hadn't dealt with all this abuse I've been through, all the struggles I've survived, and, and I hadn't dealt with nothing. So I was still a broken little kid inside, you know? So, you know, that didn't work out. Awesome. You know, like I lasted maybe three months out there, um, three, four months, and it was basically like my addiction had taken hold of me again. And uh, my roommate had locked, we were losing the place we were living because we were spending all our money on drugs instead of rent. And it was just like, um, he was going to move in with his sister and I had to go find my own place. And I had never even looked for my own place in my whole life. I was just like, so I went, called mom again, mom, I need your help again. So same thing. You can come home if you will go to a program. So I did that. I came home. I went to another program, 90 days, same program she worked for. This one was in San Jose, the one she actually worked for. I, I completed the program 90 days. Um, most clean time I've had was 90 days. Like that's, I was like feeling really good, healthy, you know, um, I went to an SLE in Hayward, um, which is actually interesting of where I live now, right? Um, full circle type of thing, right? So I was this SLE is that a sober living? Yeah, sober living okay. environment. Yes. Okay. So I went to the sober living environment in Hayward, and I actually met my current best friend there. We were roommates. We lived in the same house together, and like I like follow this dude around. He's a little bit older than me, and I like. We went to the gym together. We went to meetings together. I got another a real job. Like I was doing really good again. Um, and you know, like I go to NA meetings and I know in NA meetings, AA meetings, they always say, don't get in a relationship in your first year. And I did not listen to that. I got in a relationship. I got with this girl and um, it was a very toxic relationship. It was not healthy, um, but I was finally feeling good about myself. I was finally feeling like a little bit of self-worth because I was clean and I had a job and I had a car and 
like all these things that I'd accomplished in this short amount of time I had been clean. And I felt like having a girlfriend would make me feel better, make me feel more worth worthwhile, you know, um, because I'm still struggling with this worthiness of love, right? I'm still struggling with believing I'm worth love because my mom didn't love me because she couldn't stop using drugs. My dad didn't love me because he couldn't stop putting his hands on me, you know, and now I got this girl that tells me she loves me. So finally someone loves me, right? But in all actuality, I don't even love myself, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. nobody can love me. I can't love nobody mm-hmm. else unless I love myself. You know? That's right. Yep. No. So, so, um, that didn't work out. Okay. Um, and, um, I went back to what I know. I went back to drugs. Right. By now I had, I was living with this girl in this apartment and she left. Right. And when she left, I had my own apartment now. First time I lived by myself ever. So we turned it into the party spot. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone came over, we got high. Uh, we had, we, you know, like it was just, it was just a party spot and it was not a, it was not a healthy situation. Uh, we were partying. Uh, and I started going to, um, at this time, you know, I, I, I started going to jail again. Right. Um, I lost the apartment. In fact, I like just left the apartment after like three months of not paying rent. I just left it, left everything there that I had. I just packed up like a few, you know, pieces of clothes that I still liked and then just drove off into the sunset. Right. Um, but I didn't drive too far. <laughs> I, and by this time, I'm, I'm in San Jose, which is where I grew up in. So I'm back in my old neighborhood, back to the same people. And I just start, I started going in and out of jail again, right? So I go into jail and I get out. And my mom would let me come home for a little while and then I'd go to jail again. And it was just like a, a, it was a revolving door um, at, a, at, you know, at 19 years old, right? So I'm still, this is all of this is happening within a year and a half, right? Um, at 19 years old, I, uh, I get with another girl, but now I'm in my addiction. So now we're like running the streets and committing crimes together. And, uh, we end up staying at a, uh, at a, someone, one of my customers houses, basically like I'm giving him drugs to, sh- to rent a room for hit from his house. And, um, basically whatever I did something in my behavior that put this man in fear. And unbeknownst to me, he had hopped out the back window of his room and called the police on me while I was in his house. Um, I had a lot of drugs. I had money. I actually had chemicals because I was like, you know, thinking I was some kind of chemist or some nonsense, you know, Uh, and um, I had a gun and um, the police came in and they found all of that. So 19 years old and I ended up getting uh, sentenced to three years in prison. Right. Three years in prison, I was only supposed, I was supposed to, you know, I did half of it. I was halftime. Um, so I did 19 months off of that. And during those 19 months, um, once again, I still didn't believe weed or alcohol was a problem. Okay. So 19 months in prison, I drank the whole time I was there. I smoked weed and I got tattoos and I worked out and, you know, everything was beautiful. I was going to do my time for my crime and go home. Um, and when I got out, um, my little brother picked me up at the door. You know, he picked me up. And the first thing we did, we went to his hotel room and we smoked weed because now he's, you know, smoking weed and drinking. Um, and, you know, he's only a year and a half younger than me. So now I'm 21. No, I'm 22. Yeah, 22 years old. Yeah, I was 22 now, just getting out. Um, we went, we, uh, we smoked some weed in a hotel room and went back to San Jose and um, I was still smoking weed and drinking, but I was, I was, I thought I was functional, right? I was living in my mom's house. I was not smoking weed at her house. I was not drinking at her house. 
whether she knew or not, I was not, I was not behaving in, in a manner that I used to behave. So she was not, she didn't have no problem with my behavior. Like I cleaned the house and I did dishes and I shopped and I helped her around the house and you know, whatever, like, she, and, and I, uh, I didn't get a job at first. I, I was, well, actually I, I started selling drugs again. Right. That's what I know. Right. That's what I'm good at. Um, even as a drug addict, I was always good at making money. Right. Um, whether it was to support my habit, to support someone else's habit, if I was in a relationship or just to just make ends meet, like it wasn't an issue. Um, but that always leads to other things, right. For me, for me, that leads to the other things. So well, it, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but oh, you know, you keep you, everything you say points to what we've talked about so many times on the podcast. And that is that drugs are not the problem. Drugs are the solution. And if you don't get to the problem, that solution is just going to still be there, you know? Yeah. And, and I totally agree with you. And, and you know, the, and there were so many deep seated problems for me that marijuana and alcohol could not numb them enough. Right. So I went back to what I like. I went back to my drug of choice and that makes me act crazy. A lack of sleep can make anyone act crazy. And with all my anger issues to begin with, plus a lack of sleep, I began acting out in irrational and illegal activities, right? And your drug of choice was still meth. Yes. Okay. Yes. You know, and I had changed the way I was using it as well, right? I started using it intravenously and that just made it even worse. Um, and in, um, what year is that? 2007? Only well, like 13 years ago. What is that? 2008? And in, yeah, 2008. In 2008, I got into uh, a verbal confrontation with someone, um, pulled a gun on him, threatened to kill him. And um, I, I ended up getting arrested for that about 20 days later, right before my birthday. Um, I was 22 years old at this time. And I went through the system and, and I ended up getting sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, I was looking at 27 years. Wow. Um, and I ended up, uh, getting 10 years, right. Which now that I look at it was a blessing at the time. I thought my life was over, right. I'm yeah. But 27 years, your life kind of is, you know, yeah. well, even with 10 years when they gave yeah. me, like, when I, I, you know, I went and when they found me guilty and they sentenced, were sentenced you to 10 years in state prison, um, 85%. So I'm supposed to do eight and a half years. Um, I had been in the county jail fighting my case for six months, which was dead time because I was already still on parole from the last time I went to prison. So basically I was going to do nine years. Okay. Minimum. Uh, and so at that moment I was like, I'm going to change. I told my girlfriend, I told my brother, I told my mom, like, I'm done with this. I'm changing. I'm going to become a good human being. And when I get out, I'm just, you're going to be so proud of me. And I seriously wanted to change. Right, Joni? Like, I, I believe you. No, I believe you. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 727- Three one four seven zero eight zero, And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. 
Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I just didn't know how. Right. Right? I didn't know Easier how. said than done. Exactly. And so I didn't change. In fact, I got worse. Right? Um, when you are looking at, when you're going to do that much time at that young of an age, you have, once again, you got to be the prey or the predator. I was not going to be the prey. I refuse to be the prey. And, and you're going to, when I come full circle to who I am today, it's, it's so funny because what I did was I turned myself into a hardened human being. Right. I thought being in and out of juvenile hall made me tough. I thought being homeless, running the streets, fights, guns, all this activity I was involved with made me hardcore or whatever. But being in prison and having to either put yourself out there as someone that is tough or not, that is how I decided to put on this facade. I call it a facade because deep inside, I'm not a hardcore human being. I'm a very nice, sweet, loving, sensitive person. Um, and, and, And I mean, it's not who I was raised to be. I was raised to be someone different, but I had to become someone else in order to survive, right? And so that's what I became. I became a hardened criminal. I became a hardened human being. And if I had not done that, I would probably would not have made it through the 10 years I was in prison for, right? And- um, Did you continue to do drugs in prison? I did, right? Mm -hmm. So prison was an up and down roller coaster with both my addiction, my mental health, um, my criminal activity, right? there were times when I didn't do any drugs and it just mostly was because it was not available. Right. Um, but I still was participating in illegal activities. Right. Um, prison is broken down in California. Prison is broken down by security levels. Right. And with my young age, with, um, being considered gang affiliated and with having, uh, uh, as much time as I was sentenced to plus a criminal history since I was 15 years old, I was put to a more secure facility, what we call a level three, which is not the most secure, but it's still pretty secure, right? So drugs were not readily available. Doesn't mean I didn't make my own homemade wine. You know, like I I found ways to get intoxicated. I found ways to change the way I felt. Um, But I was able over over time, it took me about, about six years, about six years in, I was able to drop points, right, to a lower level security, right, because I had stayed out of trouble. Like, I had gotten in a little trouble, but not enough to keep me in considered a dangerous person anymore. I had gotten older. I was closer to going home. Just all these different um, factors that play a role in it, right? And I ended up getting down class to a dorm setting, and I was there for a while. Same thing. Now, a little bit more access to things. So now I'm, like, smoking weed more often and easier to make alcohol because it's easier to get your hands on, you know, the stuff to make it. Um, so drinking, smoking weed, same thing, you know, um, 
one thing though I did do, one smart move that I did was when I was on those upper level yards, uh, um, I made a cut. I, I once again, like I told you, I wanted to change. And I thought for myself that in order to change, I needed to go to school. Something got in my head that school was going to help me be successful when I got out. So I, so I started going to college, right? Um, and what college is in prison for the most part is here's your book, here's your homework, here's your due dates, do it on your own. There's no teachers. I didn't never have a teacher to meet with. I had packets of work to do. I had books to read and I had folders to send stuff out. And it was correspondence work. And I started whittling away at a degree. And I slowly over time was going to school and, you know, you know, participating in that. And then I went to the lower level yard, still going to school. Um, and another part of me changing, right. My ideas was I had to change myself mentally, which I thought school was going to do that. I had to change myself emotionally, but the way I did that was in the opposite effect as I hardened my emotions because you can't feel emotions or show emotions in prison because it makes you weak. Right. And then I changed my exterior. Right. Uh, I had always been into fitness. In fact, you know, when I was a kid, I was 15 years old. I was on the wrestling team. I was the skinniest kid in school, probably. And I had to wrestle with the only girl on our team. Right. <laughs> I got, yeah, I laughed about it now, too. And everyone laughed when I said that because I'm not a little guy no more. But um, um, I had to wrestle with this girl on the team and I got bullied and picked on because of it. Right. So I'd gotten into working out at that time. Right. But I didn't know what I was doing. So now in prison, I started working out like obsessively. I started working out. I read every book, every magazine, I had subscriptions to every magazine. I was just obsessed with working out, right? I covered myself in tattoos. Like this was just my idea of this facade I had to put on. I had to be this big, tough, buff, tattooed guy so people would leave me alone, right? Which actually worked for the most part. You know, I got in less fights because I looked scary than I, you know, like I'm okay with fighting if I had to, but prefer not to. Right. So let's, let me just look like I'm ready to fight, because if I look like I'm ready to fight, maybe I'll leave you the hell alone, you know. And uh, and so so I ended up, you know, continuing to exercise and, and, and I ended up getting an opportunity to go to fire camp and be an inmate firefighter. Right. And this was the I, I want to say this is the first time I felt like I was doing something good in the world. Say that right? again, an inmate firefighter. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So in California, um, they use inmates to fight fires and California has a lot of wildfires and they, I see basically, it's basically, um, it's kind of like when you, it's kind of like when you see convicts out working on the street, right? Like doing road work, although in California, because they have fires, I get it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, so they, yeah, this it's, it's definitely a form of slavery. I was going to say, that sounds like slave labor, kind of. Yeah, in the Constitution, uh, prisoners are the only form of slavery allowed. So so basically, they California utilizes that opportunity, right? And um, it's a million-dollar, maybe even a billion-dollar enterprise, and they utilize it to their fullest. But when you look at it as an inmate, right, and you're like, okay, I get a little bit more freedom. I get to make a little bit more money. Um, I get to learn a skill. The food's better. There's actual weights, right? Because there's no weights in a prison yard, but at fire camps, there's weights. There's big screen TVs. There's like these these anemones that make you feel like, oh, I'm winning. I'm I'm lucky to be here, right? You could use it. You can use it to improve yourself. Exactly, you know? But at the same time, you're getting paid a dollar an hour to go fight fires. And, you know, people are dying and burning up and things are really happening. But, you know, 
it's kind of it's kind of a weird balance, right? But the thing about fire camp is, I was able to finally start doing some good in the world. Okay, so I'm starting to feel better about myself. I'm starting to feel a little bit of self worth, right? Uh, and now I've got weights, so now I'm starting to work out more. I'm starting to learn more about lifting weights, and I'm starting to progress as that. I'm helping different guys get in shape. They're always coming to me like, I know you're always reading books and magazines. How do I get bigger biceps? Or I want to do pull-ups. Or I want to run faster. And it just it kind of became a hobby of mine to help train people, right? Um, and so that was, like, really good. And then in, in 2013, my mom got, um, got diagnosed with cancer, mm. and she did not make it right? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. And this whole time, my mom was the only person that showed up consistently for me, right? By it's now, a mom it's, thing. Right? We'll never stop loving you. Yeah. And she would write me letters and send me cards and send me packages and she would come visit me. And she's the only one the whole time. My brother loved me too, but he was in his own situations, you know, but she was the, the one that truly showed me unconditional love the whole time. And 2013, she got sick with cancer. I knew I'm at fire camp, but I'm still in prison. So I can't show emotion, right? I can't cry that my mom is dying. I can't show these feelings that I, so I had to lock them inside and I had to use external sources to deal with them. Exercise helped, but it didn't, it didn't help enough. And the thing about fire camp is there's no fences. It's very easy to get contrabanded, right? So smoking cigarettes, smoking weed. I'm drinking. Now it's, we're drinking real alcohol because it's easy to get stuff in. Um, and then she died, right? She passed away 2013. Um, and I just gave up on life. I just, I just stopped caring, right? What it would have boiled down to like, I'm at fire camp and I just stopped caring. And I was, I got in some, I got in fights with people. I was drinking. I was smoking weed. I got kicked out of the fire camp. I was at because I was drinking. I got sent to another one. Um, at this other one, I started doing a little bit better. Right. But it was because this other one was so secluded. It was impossible to get stuff in. Right. Which was, it was, it forced me to get clean again. Right. But once again, I still hadn't dealt with this pain of my mom dying. Still hadn't dealt with this childhood trauma as a kid. Like I had just, now what's happening is um, it's almost like the idea of compound interest, right? Is more and more pain is being compounded within my heart, within my soul. And I'm still not dealing with it. You know? Yep. You dealt with the physical aspect, but you've got three different areas you got to deal with. Physical, mental, and spiritual. And, and, and emotional. And so now here's the thing. I was at this new fire camp and I was doing really good here, right? Still training people, teaching people how to get fit. I was obsessed with working out and I'm just like, and I was doing really good there. Um, and I'm still going to school. So I'm spending a lot of time going to school and the, the correctional officers there, the cops there, they saw this. They saw me always in the gym, always working hard, always going to school. I didn't spend much time in the TV room, you know, because I'm a really like, when I get focused on something, I'm I just, like, I'm really on it. And um, they gave me an opportunity. They, um, so we have like different jobs at fire camp. And for most people, they go out and they work all day long. Um, but we run chainsaws there. 
And the guy that ran this, the chainsaw shop, he ended up getting in trouble, getting kicked out of the camp. And so they came up to him one day and they're like, hey, Mr. Casey, uh, would you like to be our chainsaw mechanic? And I was like, I don't know how to work on chainsaws. They're like, well, we can teach you. Like, all right, cool. So now I, now I have my own shop, right? I'm working on chainsaws. I'm going to fires when there's fires. I'm just like, really like, I'm thinking this is like, I'm going to just live like this the rest of my time. And I'm going to go home and I even envision like starting a chainsaw company and like all these ideas. Right. Once again, I still hadn't dealt with a lot of stuff. Right. And, um, so weed came and I started smoking again. Right. And then I remembered, man, I used to make alcohol in the prison. Why don't I just make alcohol here? So I started making alcohol and of course I get caught. Right. Because my higher power is always showing up to stop my, 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 uh, my behaviors, you know, and I just don't, I don't listen. Well, I do now, but at that time I didn't listen. So I get caught, I get kicked out of that camp. I get sent to a different camp. Um, this other camp, like, I ended up going like four different camps, right? Now this, now that I look at it in hindsight, this is just like school for me. I just kept getting kicked out of school, right? The place you're supposed to go to become a better person. And I kept getting kicked out because I didn't know I wanted to become a better person, but I hadn't dealt with the issues I needed to make that a true possibility. Right. And, and the same thing happened with fire camp. I kept getting kicked out. Um, different camps I went to had access to different things. So I started using hard drugs again and it just went downhill. Like I got to a point where I just didn't care about life anymore. I wanted to die, honestly. Like I truly just wanted to die, you know? Um, and I ended up getting sent back to the prison. And um, what ended up happening because you know, the people that I run with in prison were not supposed to use hard drugs. And uh, I ended up getting jumped by four guys. I got beat down and I got taken off of the prison yard in an ambulance. Now, normal people, that would tell them they have a problem. And I was going to say, I have this feeling that that is not your point of no return. And that, that is, is no, yeah. sorry, that, that my point of no return comes further down the line. How much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> You're fine. Okay. Okay. I, I don't want to feel like I'm too long-winded here. Okay. Um, no, that was not my point of return. I got beat up, went to the hospital, got sent to what they call the hole or ad seg, which, you know, you're just by yourself in a cell for a couple months. I got sent to another prison and um, it's called San Quentin, right? And San Quentin is actually very well known. Have you heard of San Quentin? Oh, yeah. All the way in Florida, San Quentin is known. Well, I wasn't born and raised in Florida. My dad was military, so I've traveled around, and yes, I've heard of San Quentin. Got it. So the thing about San Quentin, well, first off, San Quentin is not the way it used to be. It's not the deadliest prison in California anymore. San Quentin has actually changed a lot. And the thing about San Quentin is, although San Quentin has death row, it also has the most lifer inmates in all of the California penal system. And that means the most people that are doing life sentences. Okay. Right. And because of that, San Quentin has the most programs and opportunities for change that's possible. Okay? Oh, interesting. And now that I didn't know. I knew it was like the death row and the lifers, but I didn't know. And yet it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah because, because in all actualities, lifers eventually have an opportunity to get out. They just have to prove, they have to do a lot of time in prison, and they have to spend all that time proving that they are no longer the person that that committed that crime that got them there. And in order to do that, California was like, all right, we're going to give you every little program and opportunity. You need to do all of this to get out. Okay. Now, San Quentin is in the Bay Area. And 
San Quentin has, so on top of having the most programs I've ever seen, it also had the most drugs I've ever seen while in prison, right? This is in the Bay Area, and unfortunately, just because someone is a cop doesn't mean they're, you know? So anyways, I get to San Quentin, I'm at a fork in a road, okay? This is not my point of no return yet, okay? <laughs> fork in the road. <laughs> How bad is this going to get, Paul? <laughs> That's fine. Uh, it's a fork in the road, and the fork in the road says, A, I can dive right back into my addiction and my criminal behavior, or B, I can dive into changing my ways and changing my life. And unfortunately, I chose the criminal behavior, right? And I got to San Quentin, I jumped right into what I know, had the most drugs, so I had all the opportunity to make money, and I had, there were cell phones, and it was just like, it was a, an addict's heaven, and I was right back into the same stuff I was doing. I went back to what I know. I went back to what I was doing. I was selling drugs. I was making money. I was making money for other people. So um, they were kind of lenient on what I was doing. But I would act out too much. I would act to my addiction too much. And I would get in trouble. And basically, I was my first year in San Quentin was just, it was just riddled with addiction. I discovered a new addiction. Um, I discovered heroin. I had never done heroin before. I started doing heroin in there. Um, once again, I was intravenously. So now I'm doing meth and heroin, morphine. I added morphine into the mix because once again, I don't want to feel nothing, right? Um, and it got to a point where the people that liked me there, that were my, I would consider my friends and some of them are still my friends to this day, even though they don't live the same life I'm living currently. I still consider them my friend on social media. We talk and stuff like that. They basically told me that if I don't stop, someone was going to come kill me, mm -hmm. right? Basically, the, the, the whole thing was, go sit your ass down because if you don't stop what you're doing, we're just going to stab you and get rid of you because we're just tired of your behavior, right? Wow. And, Not you're going to die of an overdose. We're going to no, kill you if you don't I'm stop. Kill you. Yeah. Okay. Mind you, I had already been beat up by four dudes for the same behavior. Like there was, you know, that there was the, I didn't learn from that, you know, I mean, you know, like you don't learn from that. What will you learn from? Okay. We're just going to just, you know, like serious prison is serious. Like, you know, they don't play, you know, and it was just the behaviors. It was the behaviors I was just, you know, like I was putting other people at risk. Right. And, you know, I remember this vividly. It was August 1st, 2017. Okay. August 1st, 2017 was supposed to be my release date. I was supposed to be getting out of prison. And because of my behavior, because I had gotten, got caught with drugs and cell phones and lots of fights and kicked out of all these camps, all this stuff had happened. I had extended my stay for another year and a half. So now my 10 year sentence was, had been moved into 10 and a half years when I was supposed to be out August 1st, 2017, which would have been nine years exactly. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be getting out today. And I still have a year and a half left because I don't know how to act. And what ended up happening, I mean, I wish I could say that was the day, but I got high a couple more times, right? And I was so desperate that I was buying people's psych pills off of them and snorting psych meds because I couldn't get drugs. I didn't have money for drugs no more. I had burned all my bridges. My own friends were tired of my shit. I was basically about to be stabbed if I didn't stop. And I still couldn't deal with my emotions, my feelings, my life. I just didn't 
care, I guess. And I thought, you know, if psych meds are supposed to make you feel better, if I snorted them, they would definitely make me feel better and it didn't work. And another three weeks or so of that attempt at changing my feelings, my, my thoughts, my behaviors. Um, I just had that aha moment. Finally, August 30th, I went to bed. August 31st, I woke up and there's this guy and I talk about him anytime I share at a meeting, anytime I've been on a podcast, anytime I just tell someone my story, there's this guy, his name is Fernando. And I love this dude with my life. Like I known this dude, he was in San Quentin with me and I hated him. I hated him. I made fun of him. I called him a, a lame and I called him a loser. And now that I've done some work on myself, I realized I was jealous of him. I was jealous of Fernando because I watched him go to school. I watched him go to church. I watched him go to NA meetings and AA meetings. And I watched him go to this construction class that he was going to. And I watched him knowing that he was going to get out of prison and never come back. And I was going to die in prison or I was going to get out and die on the streets or do life in prison, which is the same as dying in prison. Like those are my three options with the behaviors I was doing. You know, like, and on August 31st, I walked up to Fernando and I said, Hey bro, I need your help. I have a problem and I need help. And he took me to an NA meeting that night and I've been clean ever since. Wow. Right? Well so, done. So August 31st, 2017. Yes. Four years. That's, that's big. That's really big. You know, I mean, I know it's not easy. I'm not a former addict, but I know it's not easy. And, and well done you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, uh, go ahead. Nope. I was just gonna say, so you got clean, keep going. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So I got clean. Right. And I knew that in order to change, I had to change everything. Right. So I started going to meetings with Fernando and I started going up any meetings. I started going to any meetings. Once again, San Quinn had the most programs there was to offer. So I enrolled back in school and I took advantage of every single program they had substance abuse, anger management, family relationships. Joni, I even took a parenting class and I don't have kids. <laughs> I, I did everything, everything. I stopped selling drugs and I stopped hanging out with people that were doing drugs and I just changed everything. And I focused on working out and I started doing work in the steps and I started reading literature, self-help books. And I went to these programs and I started working on myself. I started writing about Paul, about that scared little boy hiding from the screaming coming out of our parents' room. And I started learning what caused all that fear. Because for me, I found out later on that my anger was a result of fear, right? I was afraid of the situations I was in. I was afraid of the unknown. I was afraid what other people would think about me. I was afraid that you didn't like me. So I had to do things to make you like me, right? I was afraid that nobody loved me or would ever love me. You know, like I had all these fears that I never dealt with. And because I'm a, a man and men are supposed to be afraid of nothing, blah, 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 all this nonsense we hear. I couldn't express fear. So it turned into anger and frustration and erratic behavior. And so I worked on this stuff and at that time, unbeknownst to me, I'm just working on myself and trying to become a better person. The state of California decides that those that are working on themselves should start getting time cuts and some of their time knocked off. And all of a sudden I get like six months knocked off my time. 
mind you, I'm used to getting more time added, not taken away, right? And this is like, uh, I have a higher power and my higher power shows up for me consistently in craziest ways. Um, I don't believe in coincidence, right? I don't believe those such, there's such thing. Everything happens for a reason. Even me doing 10 years in prison, there was a reason for that, right? And I started getting this time knocked off for these things I was already doing anyways. And I ended up getting out of prison almost exactly a year after my original date. After, after the date you got sober or the date you went in? The day I got sober. So August of 2018, and you get out. I got out. Um, July. Okay, close, I close enough. Out. Yeah. Less than a year. Yes. Wow. Right. So, but basically I got out of prison with about a year clean. I got out right after my birthday, actually, right after my 33rd birthday. Wow. And once again, my little brother picks me up from the gate. This time he's been clean for like six years or something at the time, six, maybe seven years. He just celebrated like 10 years, you know, Wow. nine or 10 years. Like he's, you know, but he, but this time he's been clean like six years. He's living in Ohio. He's married. He's got a good life for him. He flies all the way from Ohio to pick me up at the gate, right? And shortly before getting out, sorry, I get a little emotional here, but- I'm emotional before, and I wasn't there. <laughs> shortly <laughs> before getting out, I had, you know, I had stopped, I had stopped hustling. I had stopped selling drugs and I had stopped making money in there. So I didn't have nothing. I didn't have extra food to eat. I have, coffee to drink like i was like people would give me coffee or like i would go to to the to the chow hall where we eat dinner and i would bring my bowl and i would ask the other people at the table that had money that had food in their lockers that had stuff in there that they didn't want to eat their dinner like hey can i have those mashed potatoes can i have those beans that you're not going to eat what do you not want and fill my bowl because i was hungry and i needed to eat because i worked out so much and i wasn't willing to to contribute to illegal behavior to feed myself and um I remember being on a phone call with my brother. He was like, hey man, I want to send you a package. You can get packages, right? And he was like, hey man, I want to send you a package. And I was like, nah, man, it's good. I'm cool. He's like, no, I, I want to send you a package. Send me a list, like $200 or whatever. I got you. And I was like, nah, man, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't want to ask for nothing because for years I'd asked him for stuff and he'd given me stuff and I used it for illegal behaviors. And I felt like that wasn't right of me to, to take his money anymore. And, um, he was like, no, nah, man, I want to buy you a package because I know you're changing. I can hear it in your voice. It's no longer the bullshit stories you used to tell me. You are actually changing and I'm proud of you. And I don't think he's ever been proud of me because <laughs> to, to, to 30s, you know, I was a shit, you know, I was no good, you know? And, and this is my younger brother that I was supposed to protect and I didn't protect. I protected him as kids and then I gave up on being his protector because I felt like I had to be my own protector, you know? And when he told me he was proud of me, like I'm sitting there in this prison on the phone, like I wanted to cry, but I couldn't. I'm just like, suck it up, Paul, be a tough guy. Even though by now I had started working on myself, right? So now I was starting to soften up a little bit, you know, like, um, and so like, 
you know, and that, that meant so much to me, you know, and then he flew out to pick me up, right, and he picked me up, and I went straight to a drug program here in Hayward, which is the first time I ever actually attempted to get clean was in Hayward. Prior to getting out of prison, they asked me, they said, do you want to go to a program? I said, yes, please, please send me to a program. They said, okay, you're, you got arrested in San Jose, so we have to send you to San Jose. I said, okay, wherever you want to send me. They called me into the office two weeks later and said, there's no open beds in San Jose. Once again, my higher power is showing up for me, right? <laughs> no open beds in San Jose, we can send you to Hayward. What the hell? The same place I've gotten clean the first time. Let's go. I got sent to Hayward. I went to a program there. Amazing program put on by an amazing woman and her husband. Like she's like like a mom to me, a friend to me. Like she's just so amazing, right? And I went to this program, and from there, like just life has been beautiful, right? Um, I went to the program and I did everything they suggested, right? I went to the program with a plan. You know, my last year, I made a plan. I built a plan. I set myself up for success. I think a big mistake a lot of people do when they're coming out of prison is they don't set themselves up for success, right? I had a business plan. I had goals written out. I had uh, um, steps to take. You know, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. Like, I planned this out, right? I was not going to fail, right? <laughs> My mom had died while I was in prison, and I was not going to fail her, right? Like, that was just, it was, it was not... I was not willing to, I was no longer willing to be who I once was. And in order to not be who I once was, I had to be who I needed to be to be successful. You know, I got a friend, he's a coach. Uh, he's an amazing human being, retired army lieutenant. He does these live leadership events. Um, and he has, he, I'm reading this book of his right now. It's called a hundred mile mindset. It's about having a mindset to be able to run a hundred miles. And it talks about his experience training for an ultra marathon, right? and going through these crazy events that he likes to put himself through hmm. and he has this saying and it says and it's a question to ask yourself who do i have to become in order to be successful in this area of my life right and unbeknownst to me i had already started learning who i had to become in order to be successful so when i walked out of those prison gates i walked out with a plan hmm. so i went to this program 90-day program I did everything I'm supposed to do. I read the books. I got a sponsor. I went to meetings, right? I enrolled in college. I, I figured out how to get certified as a personal trainer because that's what I was going to do with my life, right? I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people get healthy, get fit. I wanted to help them change their mindset. And, and I wanted to help them become the best version of themselves through fitness and nutrition. And so I focused on that. Um, I spent those 90 days getting everything set up, getting a driver's license, doing all these things. Um, I finished that. I went to another SLE, right? And, and, you know, I had this goal, right? And I'm a huge believer in sometimes when you have a goal, it's good to reverse engineer it, right? And what I mean by that, for those in the audience that don't understand what reverse or know what reverse engineering is, it's like, okay, I'm going to, this is my goal in five years. But in order to get there, this got to be the goal for three years. Right. You have order, to work back from there. Yeah. Exactly, you know, so my goal was to start a personal training business, right? My goal is actually to start a mobile training business where I have a gym in a car hauler and I drive around and train people. Right? I love that. that. I love that. That's a and great idea. Be, that might still be a thing one day, you know? Yeah. Um, this pandemic made me, made me pivot a little bit, but in, in a similar way, you know? Um, 
but I had this goal, right? And in order to do that, well, first I had to get a job at a gym, right? But in order to get a job at a gym, first I had to get my personal training certification. Well, in order to do that, first I had to get some money so I could do that, right? So I reverse engineered it. I figured it out. Um, I got a job, you know, I didn't like the job. I hated it, right? It was, I was working at a warehouse, literally spent 12 hours a day looking at boxes, okay? Mm. One by one, checking for defects. This one's defective. This one's not. So boring, so tedious. I hated that job, but it taught me discipline, taught me how to make an honest dollar, and it helped me make enough money to buy a bike and then a car, right? And then I went from getting that car to a different job. I started doing security. I started bouncing at clubs, you know, and I started making a little bit more money and saving money, and I got a better car, and I invested in myself, and I got, I became a, a personal trainer. I got certified a personal trainer. Um, I was going to school at the same time. And once again, no coincidences, my higher power shows up for me. I'm in statistics and statistics is a really hard class mm. right? and I'm lost, but I'm there and I'm not one to give up. And there's this kid and he's uh, so smart and he's like 18 years old. And you can just tell this kid's on top of his game. And I, I go up to him after class one day and said, man, you are really smart. I would like your phone number. I would like to study with you. I don't want you to do my homework. I don't want you to give me the answers. I want to learn and I would like your help. And we changed numbers and he, he saw me, I'm muscular, I'm tattooed. He thought I was just a meathead. And, you know, he tells me this later. He's a good friend of mine to this day. And, and, and we started hanging out and started studying and I would show up and I would study and I'd have half the homework done. And I'd be like, okay, I did all these, but I don't understand this one. And he'd be like, oh, wow, good job. Okay. Yeah. Let me help you with this one. And we started talking about what we're going to school for. Um, very similar um, goals, except he wants to be like a, a, he wants to do like sports medicine. Um, and I was working on a degree in kinesiology because I thought I needed that to, to be a trainer. Um, and he introduced, he basically was like, Oh, I work for this company. I'm actually started in Florida. No coincidences, right? <laughs> uh, it's called orange theory. Have you heard of orange theory? Say it again. Orange theory. Okay. Have you heard of orange theory fitness? Uh, -uh. Oh, okay. Oh, well, orange, orange. Yeah. Okay. Orange. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So they actually started in uh, Florida. Okay. Right. Huge, huge fitness uh, group, fitness franchise. And basically he introduces me to my now current boss. Wow. Right. So he introduces me to her. And, um, you know, one thing I've learned just in that last year in prison and in the time that I was out up into this is um, to always be honest right? Honesty is like a huge thing for me. Transparency is a huge thing. I don't hide my past. I don't hide the mistakes I made because they don't, they don't, that's not who I am today. Right. And if anyone's going to judge me on that, I don't need that person in my life anyways. Exactly. And so I got on a phone call with this, this lady and, um, she's like, you know, can you, you know, just tell me about Paul and just be transparent. I said, okay, I'm a recovering drug addict. I just did 10 years in prison. Um, I've been out for X amount. I, I, I was out maybe a year and a half at the time. Uh, no, about a year. Actually, I was out like barely a year. I was like, I've been out about a year now. Um, I, I'm working on my personal training certification. I'm almost done. And I promise that if you give me a chance, I'll be the, the best coach, the best employee you've ever had. Right. Um, and she was like, oh, shit, I have to meet you now. And, <laughs> and we met. And we kicked it off. She's now one of my best friends. Like I love her with my heart. Like she's my boss, but she's more than a boss. Like she's my, yep. one of my best friends, you know? Yeah. And um, from there, basically, um, she gave me a chance. 
And I lived up to my word. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm the best coach she's ever had, but I damn near put my best effort to everything I do. And wow. I show up consistently, right? Um, yep. I'm currently training to be the head coach of our studio. Right? Wow. So there's a potential promotion in the future. That's um, awesome. Yeah, you know, and, and it's all because of, you know, getting clean, you know, like, but not just getting clean, like it wasn't just the, the lack of drugs, it was working on myself. Yeah, I mean, you confronted all aspects of your addiction and, you know, you, yes, you, you confronted it all. Well, I am super impressed with where you are today and I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story with us today. If you wanted to just leave us with a parting message about, you know, getting clean and sober, what would it be? What would you say? Oh, there's more. Oh, sorry. It's <laughs> no, okay. That's okay. So working in the fitness industry though, gyms got closed because of the pandemic. Ah, yes. So once again, I've learned not to give up on myself, right? And so I started my own business in the middle of the pandemic. Well, most people are going out of business. I was starting a business. And okay. I, I started a personal training business and an online coaching business. And so this, this goes back into the, the mobile training idea is I now do online training, online coaching, fitness and nutrition. Um, and I work with people all across the country. You know, that's a big deal. We had a, a young man who started a gym here and he had a very, he worked with a lot of athletes, had a very innovative um, fitness program. He is now, I think, almost completely virtual. He now lives on the West Coast and he is completely virtual. So it's a thing. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a big thing. Yeah. And it, it's, it's awesome because I'm now able to help people anywhere in the world. Right. I've got clients in New York, Washington, Southern California, and what's um, your website? I mean, how do people find you online? It is, um, but I mean, honestly, the best place to contact me is on social media. Okay. But, but also my website would be www.abetteryoufitnessllc.com. A Better You Fitness LLC. So you had, you actually had me fill out, um, fill out a form. Yep. So all of that is on there. Okay, perfect. I left all of that there. Okay. So That's now, awesome. Yeah. So now I, you know, I, I run my business. So I work 30 hours a week with Orange Theory, uh, plus training to be the head coach. And I also run my own online coaching business. And then I also do in-person personal training. So I have clients that come see me as well. Awesome. You're doing great. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, thank you once again. Thank you so much for being willing to tell your story and it's quite a riveting story. I think it's it's an emotional story, but I think it's one that's going to resonate with people who listen because, yeah, I just I just know it will. And I'm so grateful for you having this podcast first off because it gives other people out there that could be struggling an opportunity to see that anything is possible if they put in the work and they're willing to change their mindset to make it happen. And I'm grateful for you having me on your show, right? Because like a whole purpose in my life is I mean, my goal is to change one life per day. If I can make one change in one person's life, even if it's to make them smile per day, then it's a successful day. And my purpose on this earth is fulfilled. That's awesome. Well, you made me smile a lot. You, all, you made me cry, but you also made me smile. 
But thank you so much, Paul Casey. I hope you enjoyed our interview today. I know it was a little bit longer than some of the ones we've done recently, but I just think Paul's story is so riveting. I feel so bad for the child that Paul was and the way his life started out. I mean, children are supposed to be kept safe and loved and it's just unfortunate when they aren't. And I think sometimes we forget that um, the children of addicts um, sometimes suffer more than the addict themselves. So um, anyway, his story is a perfect example of that. Thank you for listening. We will be back again with another podcast next week. Now we are headed into the holiday season and this is probably the toughest season for addicts particularly, but it's also a season when a lot of times families, uh, friends and loved ones of addicts think that they wanna wait until the new year before they get the person into treatment. And that's a really bad idea because the holidays are not gonna be fun if you have an addicted friend or family member. So don't wait, get your friend or family member into treatment now. And we will talk to you again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.